Bienvenidos and welcome to the Familia FFP podcast. This is Jorge Martin, and today I'm joined by a very special, un invitado de lujo, Dr. Edwin Porras. He's been making the rounds. He's a doctor of physical therapy resident and has become one of the rising stars in the fantasy football community in a very short period of time. Uh, after launching kind of like a fun blog talking about how injuries impact fantasy football, the good folks at Fantasy Points snapped them up to become their injury export. Smart decision, folks. Uh, last summer, I heard him on La Cueva del Fan podcast, and I became a fan instantly, not just because he spoke Spanish. Uh, then I became a religious listener to his Injury Prom podcast, where weekly he gave spot-on analysis on player injuries. He's someone who fires off great advice in a knowledgeable, passionate manner. He's also a fellow Mexicano, which uh, we need more of in the fantasy realm. Uh, I've had the pleasure of getting to know him and uh, you know, I want to share a couple tragos de tequila with him down the line one of these days when it's safe. So, uh, Edwin, muchas gracias. Gracias for joining us, my friend. Gracias, amigo. Man, it means a lot. You're super nice intro there. I really appreciate it. It makes me feel good about myself. You know, you know what's cool, though, is you are I've, we've had a couple conversations on the phone and you are probably a better human. Not probably. You are a better human just off the interactions we know than I am an injury analyst. So you are a great dude, a great dad. I've talked to your daughter about some of the her future goals and aspirations in the in the field of physical therapy rehab. You you are a shining example um, of a a good man and a good good dad and a good human. So I feel honored just that you would even listen to my stupid little injury injury podcast about fantasy men. So gracias gracias. I'm happy to be here. Oh, uh, no, it's cool. Well, you know, one of the things I learned uh, a long time ago is, uh, especially in being a parent, uh, if you don't know something, get someone smarter than you to uh, help them out. So uh, you were someone who's, who is where my daughter wants to be in about 10 years. So uh, hopefully, hopefully, and uh, I know she'll be uh, picking your brain down the line and along with uh, other people that I've set her up with. But Absolutely. Um, but you know, I, I, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about and we got the shared passion for, uh, fantasy football and, uh, you've already, you, you know, you got your, uh, doctor of physical therapy a year ago and I mean, big hats off to you on there, a sombrero for us, uh, Latinos. Uh, so for you, what came first, the kind of that passion for fantasy football or does the desire to want to get into medicine and, uh, eventually physical therapy? That's a good question, man. So really if I'm being honest, it, I didn't even think that I could be in the position that I'm currently in. Um, it seems so far away for so long. The prep time, as you're going to learn with your daughter is man, four years of undergrad, three years of PT school. You have to wait for the, to pass the boards. And it just never felt like I'd ever actually get here. And so I have to say the, the passion, I think not that it diminished, but it sort of it takes the work to get here, takes the edge off. Right. And the fantasy stuff, when I started doing it in my last year of physical therapy school was like new, it was shiny. There was, you know, it was something different I could use with the knowledge I was applying. It was cool. when I, we'd have a lecture about a specific joint in the body and the injury then came up in the NFL circles and I could talk about it and it was just cool. So the, really the passion to get into physical therapy is what came first. Uh, without that, I wouldn't be in the space that I'm currently in. And I'm definitely a big fantasy football fan, right? I, I really do. I love it. I am not as diehard as some people that I see on Twitter, for example, that are in like 50 legitimately, like legitimately, literally 50 leagues. I'm like, no, like I, I need some balance. So, you know, the, my passion for helping people get out of pain without pills, surgeries, injections, and so forth is is definitely probably <laughs> disproportionately high than it is to to fantasy football. But that doesn't mean that I don't put everything I, I have into 
fantasy football. But I have a question for you, man. Why did you turn around? We're going to have a little bit of a back and forth interview here. Sure. Why did you start this podcast? What was the impetus for it? And where are you coming from with that? Well, you know, I got my start in media uh, back more than 30 years ago in the late 80s. I got a start uh, as a sports writer for the LA Daily News. And uh, writing has always been a part of my life. And uh, probably somewhere in the latter part of my college years, in fact, it was 1990, uh, one of my best friends who's still uh, a close friend of mine, he invited me to join a rotisserie baseball league. And I was hooked. And six months later, he said, hey, you know what? We're going to do a fantasy football league where we kept the stats out of the newspaper by hand and everything. And, and it was, I, I was hooked at that time. And, you know, it was about a year ago. Uh, actually, it was more than about a year and a half ago. It might have been Christmas. Uh, my familia, we're in um, ultra competitive fantasy football league, 12, 10, 12 team league. And arguments are great. They're even better when we're drinking. Uh, and so uh, one of the things that we, we I can't, one of the times I just kind of took a step back outside of the one of those arguments. And I just thought, man, this would be interesting if we recorded it. And in fact, one time at one of, after one of our drafts, one of my, there was a recorded argument from one of my cousins. I was like, this made sense. I thought, you know what? And I, I approached two of my primos about this. Uh, and I said, what do you think if we, if we do this? And the other part that I saw was the fact that there were so, I, I didn't see, I, I only saw like a couple of Latinos uh, here and there. I mean, one of them is Liz Losa. And the other one that I found was Mauricio Gutierrez. And, uh, after I met him, he introduced, you know, he, he gave me some good advice after I, uh, after I met him, I started listening to a couple of his podcasts and that's where I, uh, you know, met, that's where I, uh, got introduced to you. And but the thing was, I kept saying, you know, we don't, we need more Latino faces doing this. And, uh, as you know, growing up, growing up in a, in an era where it was almost like, you know, we didn't, we didn't, it, it wasn't right for us to think of putting ourselves out too much. And I just thought, you know what, we got to do this because uh, I think it'll be fun, number one. And number two, I think maybe we'll just be, you know, paving, paving, the, uh, paving the road. And there's 30 million Latino football fans in the NFL fans just in the United States and millions more in Latino America. Uh, and I thought, you know what, uh, let's go see if we could pick off a couple of them and see, and see if they could listen to our podcast. And uh so we're going to, we're going to year two now and just, uh, having fun with it. The arguments are still good. And, uh, and, and I love the part of, it kind of keeps the media side of me doing these types of interviews. It kind of keeps my uh, interviewing chops. Uh, up yeah. There. Yeah. Keeps, that's always keeps the good saw sharp. <laughs> well, I think that's one of the distinguishing factors for me when it comes to when you reached out and we're like, Oh, Hey, you know, it's nice to see another Latino. And that's the thing about it is people are going to tune out at this point when we talk about this, but that's okay. I think that it's important to recognize and appreciate that when representation is representation matters and without representation, nobody ever subconsciously puts themselves into like, Oh, well I could be there. Right. I didn't have a lot of role models that were Latino to look to, I could look to and say, Oh yeah, I want to be that person. Right. And so on the big scale, if you never see somebody, for example, this is a really dumbed down parallel. It's not a comparison for, for anything that you want to do in life. Let's say you're going to a restaurant, right? And you go and order the restaurant, you see the grilled cheese and you go to the restaurant growing up, you get the grilled cheese, you get the grilled cheese, you get the grilled cheese. Well, one day you go to the restaurant 
and you see somebody ordered a grilled cheese, but then they also ask for an extra slice of cheese on top of the, on top of the, the, the grilled cheese. And you go, huh? Well, I never thought that I could do that. I didn't think that I could do that. That's a dumb comparison, right? But when you don't see something, you don't know that it's even a possibility for you or potentially you don't see somebody that is some in a similar position as you or, or looks the same as you. So I think that it's super important for people to understand that it's super easy to turn away from the conversation. If you've always had somebody to look to who looks like you, talks like you, has this probably similar background to you. Um, and it's not necessarily always the case for Latinos and black folks, right? Especially in the United States. So yeah, when we got connected, man, I, I was, I'm always happy and excited to, to share those roots. Like you, you asked about me in your script, like, what is it specifically? How do I integrate being Latino into what I do? I, I honestly don't, I don't try, but I know that eventually it's going to slide in there because that's what I'm proud of. I'm proud of my parents for coming to, from Mexico, uh, you know, 30 plus years ago so I could live this type of life and enjoy it and appreciate it. And I think that through my appreciation of my parents is how I try to keep my own cultural roots alive. So that's a long winded way of saying that I appreciate connecting with you specifically. Yeah. And, it, and it's one of those things to, without having this be long winded, because we believe me, we are going to talk about football and, uh, and, and some very important information. But, uh, I think, I think when it comes down to it, it, it is great. And, and I, and I really gravitated. It is great. That there, there's something that happens when you just see and talk to somebody that has a similar background. And, uh, I, you know, and, and just from our first conversation and just through text messages and it, it, there were, there were, there was a certain amount of comfort level. And I know it came from just having that shared background the you know, the, the parents who were immigrants and being the first generation, being the first ones to grad, you know, be, being the first generation to go to college and, and live the dreams that our parents right. had for us. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's why I think it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of cool. It, it, it's really cool to be able to have other people. And, and I think, you know, a, a good friend of mine uh, said, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And I think that that's one of the things I think we can we can help uh, bring each other up. And I actually, you know what, and and in a lot of sense, uh, in, in these kind of ways, by working together, I think we bring uh, a lot of other people up with us, those who are coming behind. So absolutely. Right. One hundred percent. No, I, I, I love it. Uh, I love it. So, um, you know, when did you get the idea to kind of start that that injury blog in, in the final stages of your doctoral program when you should actually be, I mean, I'm sure you were like exhausted all the time. Yeah, that's funny. That's a good question. It's probably the answer probably comes from that, from being tired of tests and quizzes and projects and, and research papers and in research projects and, you know, assignments and turning in this, turning in that, prepping for boards there, I just hit a point where I was like, man, I just got to, I've got to check out of that world specifically. And if I can mold, and this is probably subconscious, it's more subconscious than it was conscious. And I, that was really when I picked up loving fantasy football and, you know, I check out Stefania Bell's Twitter page, go to her Twitter page. You know, I didn't see like a ton there that I thought was the most actionable, not to dog on Stefania. She's, she's the best. She's the OG. I'm still trying to have her come on my podcast, maybe one of these days, but she, you know, she, there wasn't a lot of injury. I felt like dissection to the, to the extent that I think it could be and should be. And so that's what I wanted to give. I wanted to give a different spin, um, on fantasy football with injuries incorporated with performance incorporated. And I, I was just tired of hearing, Oh yeah, they got a hamstring strain. They're injury prone. 
oh yeah, they fell and you know busted their toe. They're injury prone, and that was really the extent of the analysis. To the to 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 this day, that's really the extent of the analysis. Is oh yeah, well they got hurt. They've missed X amount of games in two years. That's the standard branded, overused, washed up argument that most fantasy analysts will go to if they're not uh, medical medical people. They'll say, oh, he's missed. 30% of games in the last two years. And he's only finished 16 game season once in five years. And it's like, there's so much context in there, so much to unpack there. So as I was sort of sifting through that in my last year of PT school, when I felt like I had the most knowledge where I felt like I, I felt comfortable to jump into it, that's when I decided to do it. No, that's awesome. How can this be almost like that hidden analytic that for fans uh, for fantasy football players, kind of like that, you know, just knowing that, that, that how the injuries occur and, and the rehab time and the return to performance and the peak performance, which I think, I love the fact that you point that out. Like when a guy comes back from a hamstring, you know, you, you don't want, maybe you don't want to play him the first week or something like that. So that's a good question. I think that it starts with sort of some common sense to a certain extent not so much like, oh, you know, a person got hurt, so don't play them. Like that's obviously just, we're basically flying blind. So think about it with three rules when it comes to big injuries. Are they younger? Are they 24 or younger? Are they an NFL draft pick that was chosen in the first through fourth round? And have they had a catastrophic injury? An, an Achilles injury, for example, is really the true catastrophic injury in the NFL these days. An ACL, a compound, you know, multi-ligament ACL terror like Joe Burrow had, that would be considered catastrophic. The reason you want to look at these two rules from a general standpoint is because, I mean, pretty obviously, A, young people, which are super young in this case, heal much better. If they're the first through fourth dra- draft, I'm sorry, if they're a first through fourth round draft pick, then they are obviously talented and they're going to get a long leash from the front office because they invested a pick in them, whether that's right or wrong. And is there data showing that people have came back, a good number of, of players have come come back to play at peak performance with these injuries? I talk about Saquon Barkley um, a little bit, and we're going to get into him uh, in just a minute. But he's he's an example of a player who I'm not very worried about coming off you know, an ACL tear with a, with a meniscus issue. I'm not worried about that. When it comes to in-season management, you look at things like a 15% drop-off in performance in fantasy points after a a player comes back from a high ankle sprain their first week. Like there are very tangible pieces of advice that we can use, like very actionable injury pieces of advice uh, we can use as fantasy players to reach our ceiling and gain an edge. We just have to be able to find them and look for them. That's what I try to provide. You know, when did you first come up with that idea that really there is no such thing as an injury prone player? Because it opened, when I heard you say that the first time, I'm going to, I'm not going to lie to you. It opened my eyes and, and because I, I thought I was just, you know, I, I was kind of set my ways on that, that, and I, and it just like, I, it, I really thought that it was something that, uh, that, that was almost revolutionary. So the thing about injury prone is what I'm not saying is really important. And I say that in the fantasy points article, what I'm not saying is that there aren't patterns. What I'm not saying is that there aren't recurrences and in injuries. What I'm not saying is that injuries don't uh, impact performance. What I am saying is 2.3% of NFL games are quote injury free being healthy in the NFL. And by the way, that's in, that's in a sample of, of four NFL seasons with every skill, every position, not just skill positions. And what they found was that there is a 2.3% rate of injury free games. That's, that's nearly zero and probably zero after you account for the people who, you know, dislocated a finger, put it back themselves, saw stars on the play. They didn't tell the, the, the medical staff it's, a, it's an NFL, it's a dangerous game. 
it is a violent game. We can say what we want, but when we, when players strap up their, their shoulder pads and their helmets, they're running it. They're having many car crashes. And so from a very theoretical high level, it's, it wouldn't it be absurd if every person who got in a car wreck and had serious injuries, if we said to them, man, you're so injury prone, like that would be ridiculous, right? So why do we do that to these players? Um, so that's basically the, the place that I'm coming from with that, uh, from a, like a very broad perspective and from a more granular perspective, when it comes to players who have had like a kidney rupture and an ACL tear, and then a, an AC joint sprain, which is Keenan Allen, by the way, it, that person is not injury prone. That person mm-hmm. plays a violent game. Those injuries aren't related. Now talk to me about somebody like Jameson Crowder, who since they came into the league has hamstring issues, calf issues, groin issues, soft tissue injuries that don't go away. And he ends up missing two or three games per season. Okay. Now there's a conversation to be had about that. Talk to me about a person who's missed more than seven games in their NFL career in their NCAA career. That's going to probably follow them data shows into the NFL. Like there's just so much more nuance to the idea that injury prone is a lie. There's so much more nuance to the idea of injury prone in general. And to be honest, and I say it in the article, you know, I didn't make that up. You know, I didn't find it. I appreciate you saying it was revolutionary, but you know, people in the sports med community know this. And it just goes without saying that not every player is created equal and not every player is injury prone. Um, relative to one another, maybe it's a little closer, but when it comes to that, like even we, we can't predict injury. That's, that's the bottom line. And that's amazing. Uh, You know, one of the things there are guys who, and, and females who are just kind of unicorns who are play forever. And I mean, I, I look, I, you know, obviously I come from a baseball background, had the, had the years with the Dodgers when he, uh, you, you got guys like Nolan Ryan throw 98 miles an hour when he's 46 or something like that. And, uh, but, but I love the fact that you point out different things like, you know, that age is a, is a big factor in returning to per, previous performance and the draft capital where those guys are going to get more, a longer leash and, and, uh, and obviously the catastrophic, uh, tendon rupture of those three boxes. Do you, do you weigh them e- evenly or do you look at them? Uh, it, it, you know, does one carry a little more weight than the other two when, before you recommend drafting a player who's coming off of, uh, a big injury? Yeah, I, it depends. Right. And that's a really, that's a cop-out answer, but it really depends. Mm-hmm. So when you have somebody like a Saquon Barkley, mm-hmm. 24 years old, I think first round draft pick ultra athlete, the only other comp in his stratosphere is Adrian Peterson and a relatively straightforward procedure. I mean, it's almost a slam dunk that he's going to be fine. If, if everything, obviously nothing is 100% predictive, but if his rehab goes smoothly and he can hit all the, the criteria that he needs to, I mean, man, he's, it's going to be a slam dunk. People are probably sleeping on him. I still think he's going to be a top five. Now, you know, if, if let's say that a person is 24 years old, you can flip the script and talk about Marlon Mack. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's definitely, he's 24 years old. He had, he's a fourth rounder. And he had, he did have a catastrophic Achilles injury. He just got resigned by the Colts today as we're recording. So what do, what does that say about Marlon Mack? Well, then you have to look a little even more granular. He's a fourth rounder. So he's sort of fringe. Is he that, is he athletic? Sure. He's probably average. What was he when he was in the NFL? He was already average. An Achilles injury, we know the research shows that there's about a 50 to 70% of power drop off. Uh, in this power score that these studies looked at in NFL athletes. So you can look at Marlon Mack and you can say, he's going to be just enough to be annoying to the Jonathan Taylor volume, but there's no way 
at this point, Marlon Mack is going to be fantasy relevant again. So you just have to break it down case by case. So it's a case by case basis. No, that's that, that's incredible. I was actually going to ask you uh, about that offline about the the Marlon Mack coming back, and yeah, it's uh, I, I, I when I saw him resign today, I was like, Ay, Dios mío, that one's that's a tough one. That's a tough one, but yeah, that's going to be a tough one for him to to come back from it. But that's what what's working in his favor is his age specifically. So we'll see. We'll see how it goes. Oh well, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the article, and it's something that I'd kind of heard once before, and I just kind of latched onto it, was uh, football players coming back from an ACL tear, and obviously we're in the, uh, surgery and rehab. That uh, the that they really per- return to performance in year two coming off of that, the, the second full year coming off of that ACL surgery. And uh, you mentioned Adrian Peterson. He was age 27 uh, in his first season back from his, uh, from, from his ACL tear when he broke the 2000 yard mark. Um, Jamal Lewis was age 24 when he came, when, when he had his, his, uh, 2000 yard season. So it, it, and, and he was doing it in his second year. Uh, I mean, when you think about, when you think about a guy who's doing that, doing something like that, especially Adrian Peterson doing it in that first year coming back, was he kind of like a unicorn doing it, doing it so quickly when so many others, it takes the second year? You know, it, it yes, <laughs> I'm not going to say that, you know, freak of nature athlete, uh, Adrian Peterson wasn't a unicorn because he is and he was. So he's definitely a unicorn in that sense. So generally speaking, when you are coming off of an ACL, it actually takes the ACL graft up to a year, like 15 months for it to fully mature into a graft. And so you, there's about a 13 to 18, depending on the resources you look at, 13 to 18% re-rupture rate. That's not really the, the the thing you're worried about. What you are concerned about is if they use a hamstring, uh, part of the hamstring to repair the ACL, mm. which isn't necessarily common. More people are, more surgeons are leaning towards the quad, but you can still have quad strains the next year, um, or they can have other soft tissue injuries that are coming up. You know, their workloads are altered. And so are they going to have a calf strain? Because they're not either they're coming off the rehab and they weren't, you know, they weren't grinding over the last year like they were they were supposed to do, or you know, it just depends. It depends what you mean by, you know, can they come back versus can they come back and contribute and be okay. And I think in most cases, guys who are mid rounders, let's say, you know, the middle of that fourth round that I'm talking about. So they're second rounders, um, and they're coming off an ACL and they're already like a wide receiver too the likelihood of them coming back and hitting their peak and their ceiling is really where you'd get the really where the cap begins. And so that's how I look at it more so in terms of what is their ceiling and what is their floor. And if it's an average player coming off an ACL, it's probably going to take them a little longer to come back to, to, to return to form. Like you were saying, if it's somebody like Saquon Barkley or Adrian Peterson, I mean, all bets are off. Those dudes are freaks. They have all of the capabilities to do so, to come back and be you know, the, the peak version of themselves. And I think that's what we have in his case. So I know it's sort of a, a long-winded answer, but it's hard to answer because it, it really just depends. No. And, and, you know, you talked about Saquon Barkley and, you know, and, so I think basically we can say the the only way we can uh, not not expect him to be a uh, RB one, so a top ten a top ten running back would be if they don't fix their offensive line, and and uh, Daniel Jones isn't that good. Yeah, he's not he's not that good at all. <laughs> Um, well, there, there, you know, there are a couple other player, a few other players who are coming off, uh, ACL tears. You, you meant, you, you touched on Joe Burrow. 
Uh, Cortland Sutton is another one. Odell Beckham Jr. is is another one. Prominent players who are going to be drafted on fantasy in fantasy drafts next year, both uh, in the redraft. Can you give me your level of concern on these three for twenty twenty one? Yeah. So can you can you list them again for me? I'll go in the same order. You Joe gave. Burrow, Cortland Sutton, mm-hmm. and Odell Beckham Jr. Joe Burrow, very nervous that he'll start the season on the pup and won't be back until week nine. Ooh. I'm nervous. He an isolated ACL tear on average takes ten months to come back from. Joe Burrow had ACL, MCL, I believe PCL and meniscus. Ooh. Those are man. Those are tough. And the psychology it's going to take for him to bounce back to and, and reach his rushing ceiling, his rushing ceiling is also you know it's tough. So I'm extremely concerned for Joe Burrow in 2021. Uh, he would be a person that willing to be willing to maybe pick up off the waiver wire. But yeah, we don't even know if Joe Burrow will be available in week one. Uh, as it concerns for Cortland Sutton, uh, I, th- I think the dude is you know already up up in the stratosphere. I think that he is going to be just fine in 2021. He's another guy who's extremely talented. And he's a guy who just, I think it was two weeks ago, maybe it was two weeks ago, he was already running routes. And, you know, he's 25 years old. I think he was taken, I don't even know what draft position he was taken in. Um, as I quickly Google it, it says that he was, let's see, 40th overall. So that's high draft capital. Um, I've seen his rehab and how he's progressing. And I think that he's going to be just fine. And as far as OBJ goes, man, he's the one that I just can't really, I don't know what to tell you. OBJ is 29 years old. He's had several injuries, but none of them are correlated either. Now, you know, he's had a groin issue uh, last year and he got that repaired. Those tend to do pretty well. He's had the foot ankle stuff. I just think that his primary issue is that offense, sort of like with, with Saquon. Uh, but in terms of his performance, I wouldn't necessarily expect a peak Odell performance, but I think that he can come back and be, you know, at least a wide receiver too, from a performance standpoint. Okay. That's uh, uh, so fading Odom Beckham Jr. I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, well, you know, I think one of the most devastating injuries that we got to see kind of play out on national TV was Dak Prescott's. Uh, I mean, it was, I mean, we've seen too many of these compound fractures happen over time and it's just, it's scary how it never, I can never look at the TV more than once. Um, from what you've seen and read, is he kind of on a trajectory for a healthy return? Obviously the, the Cowboys are feeling good because they, uh, they invested a lot of money in him. Uh, and do you have any red flags or warnings for year one kind of coming off that injury? Yeah, man, that's a good question. So he is a rushing quarterback mm-hmm. through and through. He's had like a ton of rushing touchdowns. I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but um, I'm pretty sure that he scored like he's led the league in like quarterback rushing touchdowns or something like that um, over the last few years. And so when he takes off and runs, that's really you know going to give you that Konami effect. And I don't know if he's going to be there psychologically. I think that he can be there. But again, I'm looking at Dak from a ceiling floor perspective, and I, I'm nervous over the first few weeks, maybe the first month of the season, how he's going to respond psychologically to should I take off and run or should I not? And that's going to cap his ceiling in the first month. But I'm not necessarily concerned for a refracture, a re-injury. That stuff, that, that's a very uncommon injury, and I don't necessarily expect that to happen again. If there, I'll say it this way. If people are drafting Dak even around after they were last year, I'll take it. I'll put it that way. Mm. But if they're drafting him around before, 
I'm going to fade that, if that makes sense. So basically, this doesn't change my, my belief of what Dak's floor is, but I think his ceiling is going to be a little more capped for at least the first month of the season. I mean, but who, what, what do you think of Dak's injury specifically? How do you think that's going to impact that offense, and how do you think it's going to impact fantasy stuff? C.D. Lamb, Amari Cooper, Zeke, Tony Pollard, what's going to happen? There? Well, I think from a throwing standpoint, I'm I'm excited for what he's going to do. Uh, I mean, I just look at what they did those first few weeks of the season with him, you know, at, at the peak of his powers. And I mean, he made C.D. Lamb a rookie wide receiver who was viable. And I mean, which is very rare, especially early part of his rookie season. Uh, I, I'm excited about that. And I'm also kind of excited about what it's going to do for Ezekiel Elliott, because I, I think he really, I mean, obviously the offensive line was something that needed to get worked on and hopefully they work on that uh, in the draft and in free agency. But uh, I, you know, the thing that I wanted, I, I, I really felt like, Dak Prescott was like that point guard who really made this offense go. And I, and, and I love that. I would be fine with him kind of, you know, taking it easy at the beginning. Uh, maybe not, you know, breaking off to run just to kind of get his legs under him uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, and so I, I, I want to see that, but I, I do have this one image in my head and it actually has to do with Alex Smith. And it's in his first game back and his play was very, very much seen where, um, where uh, Aaron Donald literally kind of like rode his rode his back to sack him, and I I seriously was like cringing as I was watching it, and then Alex Smith just popped right back up like it was like, like it was just a normal play. That to me made me think like okay, guys can come back from this, and and they're and he can be fine. So that that I, I actually thought about Dak Prescott in that moment of thinking okay, I I think he could do this. Right, right. I think that plays a big role into it, definitely. Getting their their sea legs under them and the psychology of it's huge. No. And, uh, you know, and, and we all saw Patrick Mahomes running for his life at the Super Bowl. And then, you know, we find out he had toe surgery right after that. How, how you know, I, I know that's that can be a length of rehab and it's kind of a delicate area. How do you feel about him going into next season? You know, I don't, I don't really have a lot of concerns for Mahomes specifically. He should. He had the surgery in February. Uh, I did the math on it. Typically, it's going to take six, seven months for him to be back at full force. I don't expect that to be a lingering problem. There's not a lot of research on that injury specifically in that surgery, but surgery and rehab both do very well. So obviously, he's going to combine the two, hopefully get a synergistic effect. But I don't think that, uh, that we should fade Mahomes for that toe injury whatsoever. Oh, awesome. Awesome. I know. I, I don't want to. He's one of my favorite players. I want to see him, you know. So fun to oh watch. Oh, God. So fun to watch. Uh, though, uh, I still remember he's he's one of my all-time great uh, draft picks. I picked him up in the 11th round. Uh, his Nice. Nice. Yeah, just totally. I destroyed everybody that year. It was, it was phenomenal until the playoffs. But that's for that's for <laughs> when we're having tragos with tequila. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, uh, the last guy coming off of surgery that I want to ask about, uh, I don't think you've been asked about is AJ Brown. You know, he had that double knee surgery in January and then had that kind of weird uh, Instagram post uh, where he was saying that he might not, that they actually wanted to shut him down. Uh, that, that, those, sur that surgery, and he's, I looked it up, he'll be age 24 at the start of the season. Are you feeling pretty positive about, about him? Yeah, I don't, I don't see a big problem with him uh, moving into 2021. I see him being just fine. Now, where you do start to wonder is when will that 
sort of fall off happen for AJ Brown. You know, I'm assuming the two surgeries he had were scopes on both knees. I don't know if that's accurate. I don't have any sources confirming that, but typically a pretty, you know, a procedure that would take two to three weeks to recover from when you do it with the other one is going to take much longer, which might be the reason that they waited to do it in the off season. So I don't think this was a big major procedure. I think that these were relatively minor procedures that aren't going to impact him in 2021. Once we say, once we start seeing 27, 28, 29 year old AJ Brown, is he going to have a pretty dip steep fall off because he's going to start feeling some of those arthritic changes in his knee? Maybe, but for 2021, I don't see it being a problem. Yeah. He's a young guy. He's a young guy. Well, there are three guys, and we t- and I touched on Elliot. The three running backs that are that have missed run and missed a little bit of time the last couple of years with various little you know uh, injuries. You got Alvin Kamara, Ezekiel Elliott, Dalvin Cook. Dalvin Cook, who I remember you mentioned, you had a little level of concern with him with this shoulder. Um, they're all just past that age twenty four that uh, th- that you've mentioned is the physical peak, which I love that you put that out there. That's fantastic. Uh, but they could still be very high draft picks, especially Kamara and, and Dalvin Cook. The ADP right now, the expected ADP for them is like in the top five. Uh, any red flags you have uh, on the wear and tear because running back is such a physically demanding position? You know, I, I've had this conversation with a lot of different people. And I, I got to be honest, I, I'm not 100% convinced that wear and tear is really a, a thing. Mm. Injury-free wear and tear. Now, could it be small things we don't hear about that eventually lead to running backs demise? Yeah, I do. But I think a bigger portion of the running back position is being able to sustain speed and agility at a truly elite level, right? If the NFL is a young man's game, the running back position is dominated by the adolescents. You know, they don't have to be immediately savvy when it comes to what is what's the nuance of this whole you know how quickly do i need to hit it you know how how far behind do i need to lag behind the guards like those things matter and obviously the top guys are good at those things but as long as the dude is peak athletic and okay at the position in college then they're probably going to perform pretty well and what's going to carry a running back and what carries a running back is their age their youth so it, i don't think it's so much wear and tear per se I think it's what what is a running back? How does a running back respond when they lose a half of a even a half of a step? Because you have to remember, I mean, twenty four years old is is a very young age. That's insane. That that's a super young age. But when you, when it comes to the 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 peak age of a top twelve fantasy running back, like you mentioned, uh, that age is tightly between twenty two and twenty six. The average is twenty four years old, so they can still hit peak and, and stay until twenty six. But once they hit that twenty seven, twenty eight, twenty nine, that's when you start to wonder: Are they going to fall out of the top twelve? Now, can they still contribute? Yeah, absolutely. But you know, I, the wear and tear argument has never really been one, and it's really just a semantics. It's like mental masturbation, honestly. For it's, that's what I, I, I've used that before. Um, I've used that phrase before. I think it's funny, but you know, why do they fall off? I don't know. I don't think it's because wear and tear, but the point is that they do fall off. So as far as, you know, Cook and Zeke and Camara go, I think that they can sustain. I just saw a tweet today. I think it was from at Pa Howdy. Uh, he's, he's a great follow on Twitter, but he mentioned like those guys have probably peaked Camara and, and Cook and Elliot. Those guys have probably peaked. Let's be honest, but that doesn't mean that they still can't sustain a top five, top seven, you know, running back numbers. It's just a, a matter of relativity and where you expect them to be at. And you ask about Derrick Henry. So Derrick Henry, uh, we mentioned unicorns before, and mm-hmm. you mentioned here, you know, he's going on his second straight 300 plus carry season. And you did some digging, like you said, you found some Hall of Famers that hit that Mark Walter, Peyton Emmett Smith, LaDainian Tomlinson, Eric Dickerson, Earl Campbell. 
So, you know, they had a light load in the first three years, like you said, like you said. And so you're basically asking me here, is Derrick Henry a unicorn? Can he sustain this pace? And my answer is probably so. <laughs> in that same conversation I mentioned about earlier uh, with the running backs, uh, I mentioned how Derrick Henry's never been like a quick twitch guy. He's been a guy who takes it, who gets a step, gets downhill, and then he just runs you over or stiff arms you. And so when it comes to his production, since so little of it comes from receiving in the first place, I do think that he can continue to be successful at a top five, top 10 level, even to, to age 27, 28. But of course, I'm going to say that and he's not, he's not going to do that. But what did, where, where are you on Derrick Henry? I, you know what? I, 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 I've, I like him a lot. I, I still like him a lot. I think he's going to have one or two more years because of that light load those first three years. I think he's he, he's got some in there. He's a guy who gives the hits as much as he gets the hits. And, uh, and, and he's just vicious at the end of the season. And, you know, I, I, I look for that. I, I, for me, I love to look at where guys are going to be at the beginning of the season. And I'm looking to those playoff weeks. And it's cold. And guys aren't gonna like that. Gonna aren't gonna like getting hit by a two hundred fifty pound, you know, just sledgehammer. And that's what he is. And that's why I, th- I, you know, I'm I'm gonna be recommending him, even even though the fantasy community doesn't love the fact that he doesn't catch passes. I'm like, I don't care if this guy's gonna get another, especially if it's a seventeen game season. Uh, I'm gonna look for another two thousand yard season out of this guy with that extra game. And and I'm gonna. And I'm gonna love seeing him get another 200 yard game in week six, week 16, and uh, hopefully get some titles out. Right into the championship, yep, huh? right? Yeah, right. yeah. And you asked another question here, which I think is cool. Um, is it's a good question? You say, you know, in baseball, you hear so many bullets in your body, and after that, you know, everyone everyone has a different number of hits they can take. So you ask, considering how many hits players take all over the field, could a semblance of this be true in football? And it goes back to sort of what I was saying earlier. I don't think necessarily hits are what do it. Maybe psychologically, yeah. I don't think that it's the wear and tear per se. I think it's have you lost a step? Have you had a lot of injuries in a game that's violent? And can you, you know, psychologically keep up with the constant grind of the position? And that's so that's sort of that I wanted to tie that back in at the end because you sort of asked about that, too. No, I, I, I love I love that you you pointed that out. So uh, and, and is it coming in sports medicine almost to pe- be able to predict athletes going over that cliff uh, after peak performance? Is it you know, it, it, it's tough to say. Um, again, it's sort of on a case by case basis. Um, it depends on where your cliff is, too. Mm-hmm. Like if you're saying. Um, you know, are they going to fall after the age of 26? Are they going to fall out of the top 12? Well, statistically speaking, yes, their chances of falling out of the top 12 are still really good. Uh, but can they finish RB 13 with two or three RB five finishes on, in a week? Yeah, absolutely. It just, and I think that's part of fantasy in general. Their problem is that they really view as like, you're saying they suck or they won't, or they're, or they're a fade or they're not. Everybody comes at a certain ADP and everybody's a value at a certain ADP. And it really depends on what your expectations are. Like last year, I wasn't expecting David Johnson to do anything. Hmm. David Johnson finished like RB 20 some. And that's, that's, I wasn't willing to take a risk on David Johnson in the third, fourth round. Some people were. So it really is on a case by case basis. Um, like we're exactly like we're talking about Derrick Henry. I think Derrick Henry can maintain this pace and stay at top 12, 15 for another two years. But, you know, somebody like Dalvin Cook, who he looks like he's moving in one fluid motion, 
But Dalvin Cook is constantly making micro adjustments. Alvin Kamara is the same way. Micro adjustments in the middle of a move. He's going left. He's already moving right. His brain's already processing the next move he's going to make to go to the right. The neural connections that he, they lose over time is really what you worry about, not necessarily the hits. At least that's my my opinion. No, oh, that's awesome. That, that's awesome. Um, you know, I, I want to look ahead a little bit to training camp. And there's always injuries, and, and a lot of times it's soft tissue tissue injuries. Um, what are the ones that are concerning, maybe not concerning with, a, you know, fantasy drafts approaching uh, as well as the regular season? Could be depending on the timing too. So, yeah. So the, in terms of the training camp injuries, which ones are concerning and which ones aren't, we have to understand it collectively. Dudes are going to pull hamstrings. Pools are going to have, dudes are going to pull quads. They're going to have calf strains. Those injuries are going to happen because they're coming back from their off-season strength and conditioning program back into football. And that's just when you throw off workloads that way, um, that that's that's just going to happen. Now, the question of, you know, which ones are there to worry about? Like David Montgomery, for example, wasn't really one to worry about. Debo Samuel was obviously one to worry about. So it really comes in shades of gray. Like even if a dude has a high ankle sprain in the offseason, in the preseason during training camp, that's probably not going to follow him into, into the season because they'll give him time to rest and, and catch up. Uh, if you have a person like, let's say, Keenan Allen, if you see him get another hamstring strain in the preseason, then yeah, it's something to keep an eye on. Maybe you fade him compared to another person depending on the ADP. But when it comes to offseason injuries and preseason injuries, uh, those are really, really honestly they're insignificant a lot of times like like um what is his name drake Kenyon mm-hmm. drake two years in a row Kenyon drake was in a walking boot during training camp like did that mean anything like no of course it didn't mean anything so it just it just depends I, I, a lot of times i would say that they don't matter okay okay i'll keep uh, i'll be keeping an eye on that um you know i i love the fact that you're at the start of your your career uh and you're going to see some advancements in your career, uh, especially in sports medicine. Can you see more players like Tom Brady and Frank Gore who are just, you know, aliens because we've already overused unicorns, uh, <laughs> but just with sport, with the advancements that we don't even know that are coming from it, but in sports medicine and nutrition. You know, I'd want to say yes. At the same time, it's not going to be anything anytime soon when it comes to those advancements. I mean, a lot of the things, a lot of the advancements we have now, even compared to the 90s, even early 2000s, are crazy, right? You hear about Jordan who'd eat pizza before games and he'd have McDonald's, (laughs) right? He didn't even start weight training that hard until he couldn't get past the Pistons. Like Things that are common knowledge now that weren't necessarily common knowledge then, getting enough sleep, 8 to 10 hours of sleep. How much protein are you getting? How many plants are you eating? Even if you don't go vegetarian or vegan, how much how much how many vegetables are you eating? What's your off-season strength and strength and conditioning program look like? How many units of workloads are you putting on your body in the off-season compared to the, you know, when you're in season? All of these things that are at athletes' fingertips, and I'm sure a lot of them use them, right? And there's I'm sure, like LeBron James spends a million, you know, however many dollars on his body. But the bottom line is there's <laughs> there's in the last 30, 40 years, there's been one LeBron James. Right. There's been one Tom Brady. There's been one Frank Gore. And those are the players that you look at and you're like, okay, it really doesn't matter what they were doing or what their regimen is. They were probably going to get to this point in their life in the first place. So even though we can set the standard as a sports medicine community for, you know, everybody plays till they're, you know, 45, 
um, I, I think it's a little bit unrealistic at this point. Okay, so we'll uh, we'll hold off on Russell Wilson and talking about playing past forty for until we see it happen. So, hey, yeah, exactly. We'll just say it, it just it just reminds us to enjoy what we're seeing while while we're seeing it. That's right. So, That's right. Uh, okay, so I got a very important rankings question for you. Absolutely. Uh, as as a true Mexicano, you got to give me your three favorite tacos. Oh man, I'm pretty basic. I'm a pretty basic B. Can I say just like carnitas, carnitas, and chorizo? Ooh, is that allowed? Totally, totally. Because I'm, I'm totally basic. I mean, I like a good taco dorado every now and then. Um, not a hard shell taco, by the way. Hard shell tacos are are from hell. They're not real. They're not. They're they don't exist. Hard hard shell tacos are a complete atrocity and the bastardization of Mexican food everywhere. Looking at you, taco. Oh, um, I do. Smell. But yeah, man, I like I like a good. Oh, you know what? I'll say lengua, carnitas, lengua. And chorizo. What about you? Uh, lengua. I, I liked lengua until I actually saw what it looked like before it was <laughs> cut up. And I, I just, and, you know, my parents, you know, my parents yeah. uh, love lengua. Uh, carnitas is one of the one. Carne asada is one of my favorites. We don't. Carne asada. For the listeners that, that maybe aren't, aren't, don't share this culture, this background. A lot of Mexicans will take. So lengua means tongue. And Mexicans specifically, I can only speak for Mexicans, we take the tongue. A lot of times they buy it in full. Mm -hmm. They buy the literal tongue from the cow, which as you can imagine is pretty huge. And then they broil it or, you know, they cook it however they need to. Then you sort of cut it open and on the inside is meat, really tender meat, which is what we eat. And so it sounds crazy, but do not knock it until you try it because, man, lengua has some serious, serious, serious clout in the taco oh it's 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 serious yeah but i i just i, I can't you know i i saw it once and uh and i, I just uh the last taquero party that the my family had my mom insisted on having lengua and i just <laughs> I, I i i tasted it but i just couldn't do it because i saw what it looked like i just me on uh yeah chor- yep, you mentioned yep. chor- I, I don't blame you mentioned you. chorizo uh you know it, it's it, it's it's still phenomenal it's one of my favorites uh, the hotter Absolutely. hotter the better hotter the better hell yeah oh man and uh, oh are you red or green salsa Oh, red, yeah. man. I can never get into green salsa. I can never get into green salsa. Too mild. Do you do you drink tequila? A little bit. What kind? What, what's your favorite kind? Patron is my favorite. Uh, another one. Oh, you're so basic. Well, it's... You're so uh, basic, well, ca- George. Casadores. Casadores is another... Are you George or Jorge? Jorge, please. But familia, <laughs> well, you know what? The thing is, we're Mexicanos, so George is the nickname for, for Jorge. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and, and though my familia still calls me Georgie, so I, I, I'll answer to all of them, but, uh, te, you know, Casadores is another favorite. Tres Generaciones, uh, 1942, 1942, uh, Don Julio. So that was, those, those are some of my favorites. Uh, oh yeah. Don, Don Julio goes down smooth. Oh, so smooth. How about you? Dude, I got to say Don Julio right off the top. And if it's a night when you're just trying to get the job done, you know what I mean? You're just trying to get mm-hmm. the job done. There's nothing wrong with little Jose, Cue- Jose Cuervo Silver. If you're just trying to get the job done, we're not saying a classy night out no, on the I got town. you. I got <laughs> you. I got you. I got you. I, I, I have a bad memory from Jose Cuervo, and I just I, I can't do it. <laughs> no, I don't blame Just you. can't do yeah, it again. I hear you there. Uh, so you're NorCal now, you know, coming from the Midwest. Uh, have you been able to venture out to Russian River yet? No, I have not. Tell me what the Russian R- River is. Russian River is, uh, I think, I think it's about an hour north of the Bay Area, 
and mm-hmm. uh, the very famous Pliny the Elder and Pliny the Younger are 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 there. So if you can, if if you get out, I think it's just a little bit north of Napa. So when you and your wife get out to get out to Napa, uh, okay. see if you can make the make the trip up there. The Pliny the Elder, it's like you, you can find it in certain places, but uh, yeah, it's it's hard to. It's, it's hard to get. <laughs> I'm going to have to find it, man. You got to find it. You got to find always it. Looking, always looking for ideas. Mi amigo, where, let, let, let's close up shop. Uh, tell us where they can find all your cool stuff. Yeah, just head to my Twitter. That's the best place for it. At FB Injury Doc. You find my fantasy points, written articles, my podcast, the whole deal. And hopefully you follow me and I'll, I'll give some sort of some sort of a uh, little joke every now and then that hopefully make you laugh. Thanks for having me on though, man. It's so fun to be able to talk to you. We're going to have to do this again once the season gets closer. Oh, I'm going to believe it. And you know what we're going to have, I'll, I'll, I'm going to do it with the primos and we'll make sure to have some tequila involved and uh, we'll enjoy it. Bueno familia, eso es todo for our show. Uh, thanks again to Anchor for being our hosting network and for making sure our independent podcast gets out into the familia community. Please make sure to subscribe, leave us a review at wherever you get your podcasts. You can find our original content at FamiliaFFB.com. And remember to give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram at FamiliaFFB. And don't forget our FamiliaFFB Facebook page. And you can find me on Twitter at JorgeMartin17. Gracias, everybody. Gracias to our good friend, our buen amigo, Dr. Edwin Porras. And remember, everybody, todos somos familia.